Good afternoon and happy rainy Friday to you. Glad to have you along. Busy show ahead. We are going to get the very latest in what's happening in the election campaigning in BC. That's coming up after the 1230 news. We got so many calls yesterday when we were talking on this show about the no pet clause that Vancouver City Council has voted. Not binding, won't actually change anything, but asking for that change at a provincial level. We got so much feedback. We are going to continue that conversation today as well. Also coming up on the program, a forensic DNA expert is joining us and to talk more about the case out of Ontario, the Christine Jessup case, a cold case, an absolutely horrible, horrible case. But using some DNA technology, investigators were able able to figure out who the killer was. And we're going to talk about how that works and the advances that have been made in DNA technology. But first, taking a look at something that happened just this morning. Vancouver police say they are investigating a stabbing. It took place in Strathcona Park early today. The 46-year-old man who was stabbed is currently in hospital with what police describe as some major stab wounds to his body. Police say the victim is believed to have been stabbed inside a tent in Strathcona Park around midnight, but wasn't discovered until around 8 o'clock this morning when a woman found him on the corner of Raymer Avenue and Venables Street, wrapped in a towel soaked in blood. Let's bring on Katie Lewis, who is the Vice President of the Strathcona Residents Association. Katie, thanks so much for making some time with us. Thanks, Jill. Uh, what happened there? What did, did you see any of this unfold, or what's been happening there this morning? Yeah, we had heard, I had heard a number of reports from neighbors um, that, that that police and ambulance were unseen. Um, and they were uh, holding up a tarp, actually, so that people um, couldn't actually see what was going on. And I did speak to um, several VPD officers as well um, about the situation. Um, and it, it sounds like it was camper on camper um, violence. But I think the really concerning part um, is that um, that man was lying there for eight hours. Um, and and nobody did anything. And that just continues to underscore our concerns um, with the rapid escalation of, of um, this kind of behavior going on in the park and just the fact that they're um, that it's uh, it's just too out of control. And it's, it's um, you know, and, and things we just every week there's a new story um, and we're really concerned about um, not only safety of residents in Strathcona, but safety of the campers themselves. Uh, because this isn't the first time that there's been an assault, a serious assault, and it's been several hours uh, before that person's been given medical help. Yeah, that's right. There was a previous assault um, where a man was thought to be left for up to 12 hours. And I mean, and that's, you know, in addition to a shooting and a man wielding a chainsaw going after residents. And, um, you know, honestly, um, and, uh, you know, just constant break-ins in the neighborhood. Um, I myself, someone tried to get in uh, my house just two nights ago um again and that's twice that's happened so you know this is just a situation that that our you know our neighborhood is really feeling the impact of but um you know again i'd just like to underscore that the people in the park aren't safe either um and we you know there is a responsibility um for for us to step up um and for our political leaders to step up and and start dealing with the situation uh, has anything changed? I know it hasn't been that long since the special council meeting uh, talking about uh, getting city-owned properties, renting hotels, leasing hotels. Ha- has there been any change since that decision was made? 
Yeah, and there there is stuff going on behind the scenes, and I'm in you know in frequent contact um, with with city city council. Um, we know that they're they have to secure places for people to go, and so that that's what they're doing right now. Um, and as so that they can expand sheltering for folks. And I mean, it's it's been a week, um, but I, I think you know um, that we really have to keep our gas on the you know our, our pedal down um, because you know the this kind of this move can't come soon enough, right? And it's been over 120 days since the encampment moved in, um, and we're in a bit of a holding period uh, with the province, unfortunately, because of the upcoming election. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that that over the next kind of three three to four weeks or so, we can actually see some real tangible action there. I wanted to to go back to what you, something you said too about the fact that this, from what we understand at this point, was a fight between two people living in Strathcona Park that has led to this 46 year old man in hospital with stab wounds. We heard from some of the residents a couple of weeks ago, and one of the residents who who described himself as living on the inside of the park, which he said was very different. The the homeless people on the inside of the park, and he said they often are preyed upon by the criminal element that comes and kind of circles the park and circles that encampment on the inside. Uh, so when we say that it's between two people living in the park, and I know we don't know these details right now, but this could be another example of somebody who is truly homeless and living in that park being preyed upon by somebody who's come there knowing that they're very vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the northeast uh, kind of corner of the park, like uh, we, I jokingly call it the bad kids corner, um, because um, many of the people that aren't allowed in in the larger kind of encampment over on the other side of the park, um, many of them, you know, came from Oppenheimer and, and were, caused a lot of trouble there. Um, they've been, you know, kind of relegated to that that part of the part of the park. So it really is there's multiple encampments in Strathcona Park. Um, so it's it's a real challenge. And you know, we just again we we hear you know, so many concerns from residents and, you know, they're, you know, and, you know, even just simpler stuff that they can't sleep because there's, there's so much chaos at night. Um, and people, you know, who work in the area feel very unsafe walking to their cars. Um, and, you know, honestly, no, you know, any dog walkers in the area have long abandoned the park. And, you know, it's, it's a real shame because it, it does make up 80% of our green space and, and, um, you know, and we know that it, at the end of the day, there's garbage absolutely everywhere and the park's going to be decimated. And so we're, you know, um, it's just a really sad, crappy situation um, and one that's just gone on for far too long. Uh, when you talk as well about another uh, incident at, at your home a couple of nights ago, I think, too, that does resonate with people in that we like to feel safe in our homes. Uh, can you explain what happened? Yeah, um, so I, it was around... Uh, 9.30 at night, and um, a man tried to get um, break into the back gate, which is locked, and, and tried to break into the garage. And then he um, actually tried to, decided to set up um, a camp, a little tent, in my driveway um, and refused to leave. Um, and then when police came, um, he... Um, told them that he lived there um, and I assured uh, my neighbor assured them that he did not um, but again it's just a you know it's uh, everyone wants to feel safe in their own homes and and it's just um, you know it's it's really concerning you know you know I have young kids and you know it's it's just uh, it's just a, a constant you know I haven't slept 
quite honestly, very much over the last two nights, just because it, you know, it's just, it's quite never ending. And, you know, um, and, and this is, my experience is not unique. Um, and I'm hearing from all sorts of neighbors that are having similar experiences. And, and we're just saying that, that, you know, our community has just been impacted so much and, and it's too much. We, you know, one community cannot bear this by itself. Well, this uh, was a tragic and horrible story, but we learned yesterday police say they have identified the person who killed a nine-year-old girl 36 years ago. Police in Toronto yesterday said Calvin Hoover was identified through DNA. Through DNA evidence, Toronto police have identified a former friend of the Jessup family as the killer. We positively confirmed the identification of the person responsible for the DNA sample found on Christine's underwear. Calvin Hoover of Toronto, Ontario, was 28 years old in 1984. We know about this case uh, that Calvin Hoover was 28 years old at the time of the murder. Christine Jessup was last seen in October of 1984. Her body was found more than three months later and the case got national attention as her neighbour was wrongfully convicted in the case. Now we heard yesterday from a detective as well saying that it was the Golden State Killer case that got them thinking that DNA technology could help. A few of the members from our office observed the Golden State Killer uh, presentation and we thought it may be something that we'd like to look into as well. We were able to uh, have enough DNA, offender DNA, that we could send down to a lab in the U.S. We were able to upload it to um, the GEDmatch system and find some distant uh, relatives of our offender and at that point we used investigative techniques to build back our tree. We were able to narrow it down to one suspect and um, positively identify him. That was Steve Smith with the Toronto Police Service. Well, let's bring in Dr. Monty Miller, Director and Forensic DNA Experts, LLC, joining us on the line. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. You're welcome. How can I help? Well, I'm curious because this has been such a big case in Canada. And to get that news that DNA evidence was able to finally uh, bring some closure and to pinpoint who the actual killer was, how has DNA uh, technology changed over the years? Well, the DNA that they use for uh, crime scenes and and, and crime stuff has, has evolved some. Um, and it, it's excellent at identifying an, an individual um, and doing comparisons. But what they've done here with the genealogy sites is, is reasonably new and did start pretty much with the Golden State Killer. And what they do, if, if um, they have some DNA left over, particularly from, you know, cold cases and things like that, if they don't have a match in the criminal database, and they have DNA left, they can take that DNA and then put it in the genealogy websites, same as anybody else can, same as you can to determine if you have long lost relatives from, from some, some, you know, uh, quite away, quite distant relatives or anything of that nature. And so really they're just taking advantage of the public access to DNA that some people put out there in order to find relatives. They take the DNA they find relatives or, or potential relatives, and then they just start looking at them. You know, when did this, you know, do you know of any of your relatives that lived in this area? Um, and that sort of thing. And after a while, they hopefully can narrow it down. And in this case, they did. Um, then what they do is they go back, and in this case, they found that there was some DNA 
um, from Calvin Hoover that was at, uh, done at autopsy. And so they were able to go get some DNA and do criminal DNA with it and make sure that it matched exactly. And in this case, it did. So, you know, they know they got the right guy. And we talk a bit about the Golden State killer case. Why? What was specific about that one? Was it just that we had gotten to the databases and these genealogy sites were finally big enough? Or what was it about that case that seems like it was the breakthrough? Well, part of it was that, that they, they are larger, um, as you say. And obviously, the larger they, they are, the more people that are in there, the, the more able we are to, to, to find relatives. Um, it really just was the first case because somebody did some original thinking and said, hey, I have some DNA here, and it doesn't match anybody in the criminal database. Where else can I look? And we have this public database of people's DNA. And so um, while the technology that we use for uh, crime labs is different, um, there's no reason it shouldn't be used. People put their DNA in there. They put it up there to try to find relatives. If their relative happens to be one of these criminals, then it works out good. Um, but the Golden State Killer was really just the first case where somebody, you know, thought to actually make that that connection. And then, you know, we got good results with it and it became, you know, publicly known. And so a lot of people, you know, like, like these these people here in, in Toronto are saying, you know, when we heard that, we thought, hey, we have cases we can do that way. So, yeah, it was it was more of a of a unique moment where somebody did something where everyone else said, hey, I can do that, too. And have you seen changes in the, the the types of testing when you talk about the difference between criminal testing and, and in other scenarios? Has it changed at all as far as accuracy or maybe the amount of DNA needed to get all of the information necessary? Well, uh, for criminal DNA, um, the amounts that we need to, to, to get a DNA profile have, have significantly dropped over time. Now we can get uh, DNA, a profile off of, off of something if we only have five or six cells. So you need more than that um, in order to do the genealogy stuff. Um, and, and, and that's important because you do have to have, you know, in this case, they had some semen on some underwear. And so they were able to get enough DNA to run the genealogy because they're going to have to run the criminal sample and then they're going to have to run a genealogy sample. So we do have to have um, enough DNA to do that. The real difference is that when you're looking at criminal DNA, you're looking at about 50 different places on your DNA. When you're looking at genealogy, you're looking at about 700,000. So you're looking at so many more, more places in the DNA, you can make connections with, with um, much more distant relatives. And without them being in the criminal database, there's really no way to do that comparison. You just you have to do it. You have to do it twice for two different purposes, run two different kinds of tests. So you do have to have enough DNA left over um, and that kind of thing. And does it matter what kind of DNA it is, whether it comes from saliva or blood or skin cells under a fingernail? No, it really doesn't. The DNA is going to be the DNA no, no matter where it comes from in your body. Um, if you have DNA, then, then you're good. Now, everything in your body doesn't have DNA. A lot of your skin cells don't. Some of them do, some of them don't. So if you have enough skin cells, if you have five or six of those that have DNA in them, then, then you're fine. If you have five or six of any cells that have DNA, you're fine, um, which can be you know, saliva, semen, uh, blood, could be a, a piece of your liver could be a, a root from your hair, 
any of those kinds of things um, would give you sufficient DNA to be able to provide a profile. And when we're talking about cases like this, this is a case going back to 1984. Uh, The testing that would have been done at that time, obviously different from now. Do do we rely on tests that are done and kept or is there some way do our labs able to keep samples and then retest them at some point? Well, um, and, and it depends on when it was done. Now, if you go back far enough, you know, like the, the early 90s and, and some of those, the technology is actually different. Um, we, run the, we run different spots on the DNA, and, and we're, we're doing it complete, in a completely different manner. But once we started uh, the type of DNA that we run now that's in the criminal database that, that every crime lab uh, worldwide or most crime labs worldwide run, all of those are comparable. So the ones that we ran back in, say, 2000, where we were only looking at 32 places on the DNA, now we're looking at 50 places. So we can still compare those 32. We're using the same 32, plus we're using 18 more. So if you go back far enough, the DNA can't be compared because it's different technology. If you go back just a few years, 10 years, 12 years, then a lot of that DNA um, can be compared, but the statistics won't be as good unless you run it again. And even if it was run in the 80s, if there was enough DNA left over, you can always run it again. It's probably not going to go bad as long as it's, um, as long as it's stored in, in a hospitable environment. And do you think this is going to continue being pivotal as far as murder investigations and cold case files, as it seems like there are, are certain labs right now or uh, limited labs that can do this? Do you see this becoming a far more uh, kind of mainstream uh, way of investigating? I do, and I, I think it's already become mainstream. Um, I think there are a lot of people doing it, but there's a lot of legwork to it. You know, if you get a genealogy profile and you have distant relatives and even more distant relatives, and you got to track all those people down and say, hey, do you know anybody in your family that lived in this area? You know, and, and would you know where your, your second cousin twice removed lived? You know, you might not. You need to talk to the right person and find the right person who knows someone in the family that, that lived in that area or, or something. So it, it's really an investigative lead. It's tremendous, and it's going to grow because lots of people have their DNA in there, and lots of people are continuing to do it. You know, people like, like, like me, they're not concerned if their DNA is in there because um, I know nobody's going to do anything bad with it. Now, mine's not in there because I'm not that curious, but <laughs> I don't have a problem with it being in there. And so I think a lot of people feel that way, and the more people that are in there, the more likely we are to catch somebody. And so I do think it's going to continue. I think it's going to increase, and I think it's going to be more and more common to solve these cold cases uh, this way. And it's also going to be a way that we're going to be solving some current cases, which I don't see a lot of yet. Um, But I think that's going to happen, too. As soon as they run it through the criminal database and they find that um, there's no uh, useful connection there with anybody, then, you know, they may just turn and directly run it through the, the public database. So I think there are going to be laws on that and, and things. You know, I, I know the article even mentions that, um, you know, there are other ancestry sites and, and, and there are some questions with, with people and whether or not that ought to be legal. But it's public access. You know, there's public information out there. And for the most part, they're not actually looking for the criminal. The criminal can't prevent anybody from his family from putting their DNA in there. 
Right. And so it, it's an interesting dynamic that I think is going to happen more and more. And not only are we going to close some of these cold cases, um, but we're going to close some current cases as well. Well, it's uh, fascinating research and technology. We'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. You're welcome. Have a good day. Well, we have been talking a lot about the election campaign in B.C., And part of the campaign you might not have heard about is an attempt to put China on the agenda as an election issue here in B.C. Well, what exactly does that mean and what does it look like? Joining me to talk about this is Ian Young. He broke this story. He's the Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. Ian, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Yeah, good, thanks. So how, how did this all come about? And maybe give us a, a bit of a background on what this campaign is all about. Yeah, well, this campaign, which is called the uh, the No BC Vigie campaign, is basically um, an attempt to put China and Xi Jinping on the agenda uh, by labelling candidates as either um, Communist Party leaning or um, against Communist Party interference. Uh, so it's quite an unusual, um, unusual effort because, you know, these, these are big geopolitical issues that don't normally uh, find a place on a provincial or local election ballot. Uh, so why are they finding a place there this time? Well, you know, I mean, China is front and centre for a lot of people these days, um, you know, particularly for uh, Vancouver's substantial Hong Kong-related population. Uh, so you've got the things that happened in the past year. You've got Hong Kong. Um, you've got uh, Meng Wanzhou, you've got uh, Huawei, you've got the two Michaels. All those things have um, served to drag down China's reputation, uh, I think, in, in this part of the world. Uh, and, and one other thing that needs to sort of be highlighted is that, to an extent, China itself has put itself on, um, uh, on the provincial uh, political radar uh, by trying to be involved in um, deals with the provincial government um, in a way that other countries don't. You know, back in 2016, uh, China um, struck an agreement with Christy Clark, the government of Christy Clark, um, to, to talk about uh, Belt and Road initiatives, which is this big Chinese infrastructure scheme spanning the world. Uh, and that was unusual. It makes BC the only place in North America to have um, reached such an agreement. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that worries uh, these campaigners. And there's a spreadsheet, I guess, that can be accessed and you can look at it or there, the information is being collected as far as which candidates might be labelled a Chinese Communist Party leaning or interference against interference. Yeah, that's right. There's um, uh, questions that have been asked of all these candid- all the candidates. Um, some have responded, some haven't. Um, and what, what the campaigners ask is um, whether the candidate disavows the Belt and Road Initiative, and whether they also reject donations and sort of um, de facto donations from um, uh, Beijing or its proxies. Uh, And on the basis of that and on the basis of past behaviour, they are assessed as either Communist Party leaning or against Communist Party interference. Uh, Do you think there's room there for for some misinterpretation or could there be, say, candidates that are getting donations from people that they are 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 making the assumption that they're they're simply constituents or citizens, but there's actually a link? Definitely, yes. Um, I think that um, the campaigners themselves are aware of that. I think that a lot of uh, provincial candidates would go into uh, something like this quite naive and and wouldn't quite understand what might um, be implied by an approach by someone with... Uh, links to the Chinese government. And I think that the campaigners themselves have said that this campaign is um, uh, intended to inform the candidates as much as the electorate.
this is happening at the same time on a federal level. We're, we're seeing, uh, you know, directives given that uh, warning Canada not to grant asylum uh, to people fleeing Hong Kong. I, I mean, I think it kind of people can understand on that level what's happening because that is the level of government that is dealing with that. But that's what I think might be uh, seem a bit odd about this is, again, that we're talking about it at a provincial level. Sure, but uh, the thing is that China itself has intervened not just at a provincial level, uh, it's involved itself in local politics. You remember that um, for years the consulate here um, sponsored uh, the Union of, of, of BC municipalities, um, a, a, a big reception, uh, you know, it paid thousands of dollars to basically conduct this um, you know this this cocktail party. Um, why is why is the consulate doing that? Why is the consulate uh, buttering up local mayors? Why is it buttering up local councillors? Um, China doesn't always have um, you know transparent motives, but certainly it's in China's interest to have friends on the ground here. Well, and even yesterday on this program, we were talking with uh, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West about schools in Coquitlam uh, that are t- that have ties with the Confucius Institute and saying that the institute had changed its name and they felt that it was no longer really affiliated with the government, which he was saying was absolutely ludicrous to think that that's the case. Yeah, I think Mayor West has actually been at the cutting edge of um, uh, awareness about uh, these kind of tactics by, by the Chinese uh, Chinese authorities. Um, and as I said, it's not exactly a transparent effort, so it's uh, not a case that we can say, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You can look, though, um, at these attempts to influence local and regional politics in ways that other countries do not do. Other countries don't sponsor cocktail parties. Other countries don't strike these kind of, you know, um, nation-to-province deals. And BC itself has been, as I said, quite unusual in its receptiveness to these um, approaches. As I said, only BC in North America uh, has a Belt and Road Agreement with China. Um, obviously, that's, that's, that agreement isn't particularly in good standing at the moment because we've got a different government and China is in a different place than it was in, in 2016. But, you know, it is what it is. You uh, went through the numbers as well, uh, seeing who was listed as CCP leaning, uh, who wasn't. And uh, I found it interesting that uh, it goes across party lines. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think this is necessarily um, um, a partisan effort. Um, There were um, probably more BC Liberals who were listed. um, And there are a couple of NDP people who were listed as CCP leaning as well. Um, but then again, there are NDP and NDP people as well who were listed as against CCP interference and a large number of, of, of BC Greens who were similarly listed and, you know, BC Liberals. I think the, the, the place where this is most sensitive, though, is in electorates like, um, like the Richmond-based electorates, where you have a large ethnically Chinese population. And what this campaign does is it proves that there is no one Chinese-Canadian vote bloc there, is, there are any number of Chinese-Canadian communities and they are um, uh, quite vehemently opposed on a lot of issues. And, and I think that um, candidates need to be aware of that, you know, that, that this idea that taking a particular stance will offend all Chinese-Canadians, I don't think that holds true anymore. Uh, it's also, uh, this is also happening while in BC, we're dealing uh, with Meng Wanzhou with the extradition case. Uh, Canadians are watching and very much wanting to know what's going to happen with uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. How do you think, or I mean, is there a connection there? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I think Vancouver is at the cutting edge of, uh, of China's outreach to the rest of the world. It's no coincidence that Meng Wanzhou got arrested here. It's because she owns a home here. The reason she owns a home here is because, um, you know, Vancouver and Canada rolled out the welcome mat to Chinese millionaires for many years, and she is one of those. Um, you know, so all of these things are tied together. Uh, China's um, implications to the rest of the world. Is it surprising that they made those in BC? No, not really, because, you know, we're here on the Pacific Rim um, and we're an important market for China. Um, They saw back in 2016 uh, an opportunity to to, to reach out, to, to try and make that connection. Whether anything comes of that, you know, I don't know, because, as I said, we're in a very different place now with uh, China-Canadian relations than we were back then. And Ian, just to, to go back to the tracking uh, candidates and where they stand with China. So uh, once uh, the election is done and the votes are in and we see who is who has been voted in, what happens to that information or how do you feel like that information will be used? Uh, I don't know. I think you'd have to ask the campaigners that. Um, the campaigners themselves are a fairly young bunch. They're um, people who are uh, generally speaking, have been involved in um, uh, the Hong Kong protest movement or support for the Hong Kong protest movement. So that's that's their perspective going into this. But they raise also um, uh, other issues with China. You know, they they, they contend um, about these problems with with human rights in general. You know, the abuse of the Uyghur population in China, and also the you know the 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 level of security threat that these um, these kind of deals might offer. So. Um, you know, you'd have to ask the campaigners themselves what they plan to do with the information afterwards, but they're not, they're not going to go away after, after the election, that's for sure. All right. Ian, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, you've likely heard from either Dr. Bonnie Henry, other health officials as well, saying that if there was ever a season, ever a year to get a flu shot, this is that year. Flu clinics are opening and we are hearing that clinics and walking clinics, public health clinics are getting extra doses of the vaccine. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about why we are being told that it's so important this year is Dr. Dr. Mina Dewar, Vancouver Coastal Health Medical Health Officer. Dr. Dewar, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, for sure. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, when we, we say that this is the most important or it's important to do it, is it to protect yourself or is it to protect others? Well, it's for both. Um, so so influenza is an important and a severe illness any year. Um, it results in several thousand hospitalizations across the country and about 3,500 deaths on average in, in the flu season in Canada annually. So it's a pretty severe illness, and, uh, and we ask people to be immunized, um, people who are at risk of influenza themselves or severe complications from flu, but also their loved ones and caregivers around them so they can protect them, protect their family members um, uh, from getting the flu. This year, um, the the difference is that we also have COVID, of course, and uh, the symptoms of influenza and COVID um, can and do look quite similar. It's fevers, chills, cough, um, shortness of breath, um, and other respiratory symptoms. And, uh, And what it means with the arrival of flu is that people will have to go in for COVID tests um, and they can uh, decrease their chances of having to go in for COVID tests or, or, um, or healthcare assessments if they've already been protected against influenza. So if you get a flu shot, but you still develop, say, sniffles or some of the symptoms, would you still then have to go and get a COVID test? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a flu shot is uh, decreasing our chances of getting um, those same symptoms from influenza. But there's lots of other viruses, including COVID, that can result in those symptoms. So, so yes, um, uh, for now, uh, anybody with um, uh, those symptoms uh, consistent with COVID will need to get tested for COVID and is recommended to be tested for COVID. Uh, because of COVID-19, uh, people are taking extra precautions as far as when we go out. So how uh, available will it be? In, in the past, I know there have been you know, walk-in campaigns. Uh, a lot of workplaces have had flu shot clinics. Uh, are, are you uh, concerned at all that with, in some cases, having to make an appointment or to take that extra step that might deter people? I hope not. Uh, You know, things are different this year, um, but what's important is that um, uh, province of BC has ordered more vaccine, more influenza vaccine this year. Uh, We're expecting a greater demand from from BC residents as well, and, and we're all hoping to immunize lots and lots of people. Um, things will be different in the sense that mass influenza clinics will look different. They'll be um, organized. Um, we, we recommend that people get an appointment rather than dropping by to get their flu shot. Um, but we expect that some people probably uh, won't be able to get an appointment, um, either because of access to computers, etc. And and we, uh, uh, we we just encourage people, if they're unable to make an appointment, to still come on by. And if our clinics can, um, um, uh, can absorb them into the clinic, we absolutely will do our best to make that happen. Um, but, but I think it's important that in the time of COVID restrictions, we, we are careful about the number of people who gather at, at a clinic at any given time, and that they're physically distanced. And how effective is the vaccine? So influenza vaccine uh, efficacy varies from season to season. It's it's based upon uh, the type of influenza virus that's circulating and the type of um, antigen that's that's in the vaccine. So it's it's a match between the two and and how how good the match is in any given year. The important thing is that the um, effectiveness is between about fifty to eighty uh, percent, depending upon the strain. So it's a pretty um, darn good vaccine, knowing that we're uh, um, uh, when when the antigens are chosen in spring for the fall campaign. Um, World Health Organization is essentially making an educated guess as to what type of strain may be circulating in the fall. So so we get a pretty pretty close each year, and uh, and I I think that's great for um, for a severe illness like influenza. And how do you reassure people? Because there are always people, the two things I hear from from people who are hesitant, the first one is, do you get sick when you get a flu shot? So, so certainly uh, some people can get side effects from a uh, vaccine, but these are usually mild. Uh, people can expect to get a sore arm. And, and again, uh, that doesn't occur in 100%. It occurs in a small proportion of vaccine recipients. It just means that your immune system is responding to the vaccine and it's fine. Um, a, a very small proportion of people can have um, perhaps muscle aches and pains. But again, it's the immune system responding to the vaccine and it's it, they're not getting sick sick from the flu shot. Um, and and uh, because the flu shot actually contains a component of the virus rather than the whole virus, uh, they, they won't catch flu from the flu shot. All right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I did get an email from a listener as well um, with concerns about what exactly is in the flu shot and that people are curious and want to know what makes up the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, vaccine science is actually 
pretty interesting and fun, um, uh, um, influenza vaccines. So all of the flu shots, um, and anything that you get by injection, contain components of the virus. And these are surface components of the virus so that our body can recognize uh, the surface of an influenza virus if we were to encounter a, a wild type or a natural virus, and we can fight it off. Um, a, um, vaccines also contain a, a little bit of preservative, for example, just so the vaccine keeps well during storage, uh, maybe a little bit of antibiotic in it. Um, but most of the components that are used in creating the vaccine are, are filtered out before the final product is packaged and distributed. I, I do want to note that there's one exception to what I'm sharing, and that's the intranasal flu vaccine or flu mist. You may be aware that uh, this was a vaccine that we have occasionally offered to children um, 2 to 17 years of age. We have it again this year. Uh, the flu spray vaccine is actually a live attenuated vaccine. So it is, it is the entire influenza virus, but it's a weakened form of influenza virus that seems to produce a good response in children and good protection for children. And the bonus is they don't get a shot. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't like needles, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, where is it? Is it free for, for most British Columbians? Or if it's not free for you, do you purchase it? Or how does that work? Yeah, you know, it's it's recommended for everybody, and it's pretty much free for everybody. I, I think if people were to show up at any public health clinic or physician or doctor's office, I don't think anyone would turn them away. Um, 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 essentially, it is highly recommended for the following. So children six months to five years of age, people 65 and older, and everybody between um, five years and 65 years, anybody who has an underlying health condition um, and sees their doctor regularly or infrequently should absolutely be getting a flu shot. And then on top of these individuals, anybody who's a household contact of these individuals or a care provider to them. Um, And then, of course, we offer the vaccine to essential community service um, workers like police and fire, etc., and healthcare workers. Um, and and for a few years, we've been offering the vaccine to anybody who comes into a healthcare facility. So I think it pretty much covers um, all of us. All right, Dr. Duar, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, can I just say one point? Mm-hmm. And that's uh, our flu clinics are getting started. And uh, so the place to go to locate a clinic close to you is um, immunizebc.ca. That website has a flu locator. You punch in your uh, postal code and uh, you'll find um, all sorts of clinics close to you um, that are offering flu shot. And sorry, that immunizebc.ca? That's right. All right. Perfect. Uh, Great information. Uh, Dr. Duar, thank you again so much. Have a good day.